Hello, this is K.P. Kolsky, and I will be reading a passage from my book, Fairest Flesh. Part 1. In the Woods of Hungary. Chapter 1. The year 1559. Hanga pointed to the rabbit in the snare. Get it. Most children at this age still bore some charm that kept their parents doting. But Hanga's girl had been a prune from the start. Hanga did not dote on anyone, least of all this ugly child. The girl lifted the trap, her lumpy face brightening. Mama, can we keep this one? Bah, you need to learn that there's more important things than furry creatures. There's power and powerless. What do you think you'll eat for dinner? The girl scrunched up her face. I don't need to eat meat tonight. I'll just eat the greens. I don't want to eat meat ever again. Little Doratia peered into the cage with a frown, dull eyes turning glassy. Life's harsh lessons would be worse for this child, looking as she did. She needed skills and toughness. She had grown old enough to learn both. Come on, girl, we've got to get back. The rabbit hunched within the trap, frozen in quiet terror, waiting for the end. It knew, as much as Hanga did, that life held no comfort, only pain medicine and truth. You can eat the greens, Hanga said when they returned to the tiny cabin. The sun rapidly closed distance between the dome of the sky and the treetops. Really? Doratia perked up, hope dawning over her features. I can keep it. I can name it. Yes, Hanga said. Best to learn when attached. Medicine was rarely needed in times of calm or with strangers. She let the girl hold the tiny thing. Not much meat on the animal for eating, anyhow. They ate greens together, and the rabbit relaxed, tricking itself into hoping. Hope is a trick. Comfort is a trick. Asleep, the child curled around her pet, fingers entwined in its fur. Peacefully, both dreamed in the warmth of their new companionship. Rabbits scream when they are hurt, just like people— when the stone Hanga held smashed the legs of the rabbit, it woke Doratia, who jumped to her feet and joined in with her own panic shrieks. She rushed and sobbed and tried to soothe the creature she loved. It bit her in its terror and pain. Good. Now it is time to learn medicine, Hanga said, dropping the reddened stone. Welcome to The Archetypist. The only analytics-based genre fiction podcast. This is a special episode recorded during Women in Horror Month. We'll be interviewed K.P. Kolsky. Her debut novel, Fairest Flesh, just came out from Rooster Republic and made the first ballot of the Bram Stoker Awards. And in our conversation, it was, it was really great. She talked about some themes like um, gothic horror, uh, feminism, and the concept of the other and, and what that looks like in some of her works. So, Jacob, what was your favorite part about talking with uh Christy, who writes as K.P. Kolsky. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, I mean, she, I enjoyed her, her, her discussion of the other. And, and honestly, I, I enjoyed just hearing you guys talk about feminism. I thought that was, was interesting, you know, just as a, a guy to sit back and, and just kind of listen to what you guys were talking about. So, yeah. I mean, she was very accessible. 
Yeah, that's what I thought, too. She struck me as very personable um, and also really um, very self-aware. I really appreciated uh, some of the thoughts she had on, you know, overcoming trauma in her life and and what it takes uh, to be a good person, which was really great, I thought, to hear from a horror writer, just how very wholesome she was. Yeah. And I guess we should mention that like, there is a little bit of discussion of 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 past past abuse. I mean, it's, it's nothing explicit, but just as a fair warning, you know, she, she talks about, you know, her childhood and some things that had happened. So I mean, how it's influenced her, yes. which I mean, we all have it's things. A fair content, so, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I really appreciate it kind of getting the, the sneak peek into what some of the themes in horror are, um, you know, of that aesthetic genre once we get that far in our cycles. Oh, yeah, I, I think we're doing that later in the year, not not next or the next, but I think it, I think it's actually, yeah, I, I think it's scheduled for around Halloween, actually. Ooh, that'll be fun. All right. Well, without further ado, enjoy our conversation with KP Kolsky. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Um, was it nominated for the Stoker? I think I saw. Unfortunately, that. it wasn't. I got in the preliminary, uh, but didn't get that far. Okay, so just like a basic synopsis overview, like, so what's it about? So, um, First Flush is a, a gothic horror. Um, it's set in 16th century Hungary. It surrounds the story of Elizabeth Bathory, who's a the countess, the blood countess, she's pretty infamous. Um, mm-hmm. And she's mostly infamous for the idea of bathing in blood and things like that for, for beauty. Turns out that part isn't actually accurate, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of part fairy tale, part historical uh, fiction. Um, okay. And it really focuses more on the people around Elizabeth and basically their motivations for helping her. Um, and their part in kind of the horrific killings that occurred. Sounds kind of um, deeply psychological, I guess, because you're looking at how people are um, kind of brought in by this like evil figure. Is that kind of what you're? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, she's not the only one who's evil. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, sometimes evil people kind of draw other evil people to them. Yes. Yes. Oh. Indeed. Well, so um, you were a history major, right? In, in undergrad, right? That- yes. Um, I have a master's in history as well. Oh, that's cool. So how, how has that influenced your writing? Does it give you a uh, better research tools to use when you're thinking about um, how to choose something to write about and make it, like you said, historically accurate? Absolutely. Um, it, it helps. And it also can be a hindrance in that sometimes you get kind of stuck wanting to get it perfectly accurate and you can't forget you're just writing fiction, right? So um, but it's really helpful in doing research. I know where I'm going with research. Um but the biggest thing I find that's helpful is that it, it, there's so many ideas. Like I read history for fun because I'm that person. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many times when I'm reading, I come across stories or events that I'm like, oh my God, like reality is, you know, worse oftentimes than what fiction can even do. So, um, yeah, lots of material. And so I, like, I'd assume that your love for history kind of is what brought you to this sort of piece of gothic, not trivia, but this story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In fact, what ended up happening is I, I, I was reading a little bit more about Elizabeth and uh, because it, her, I, the ideas of beauty and all that sort of kind of really interested me. Um, but as I read it, um, I started to find out more and more that there's these other people. 
and that it wasn't just her and all these people had like there were people out there who went and got girls for her to murder like knowingly so yeah yeah so um it was uh i really want to know why like what what motivated them you know and unfortunately they're not you know big enough to have any kind of recordings about their thoughts or anything like that and i mean we don't even have it for the countess so uh i wanted to fill in that story yeah it it kind of reminds me of as as gross as that is it reminds me of the epstein thing a little bit cuz he kind of had um what's her name uh who kind of gr- groomed people for him right yeah yeah charlene Her- uh chelaine i think was her name was yeah i think she was just arrested thankfully so that's yeah. good to hear so since you write um, kind of historical fiction, like you're um, saying, Christy, or at least this um, debut piece is, um, you know, we talk a lot on our podcast about um, genre fiction um, and we're specifically looking at horror in this case. So how do you, as someone who's studied genre fiction and also writes in the genre of horror, how do you pull in some of the tropes of genre fiction into these historical events when you're writing your story? Well, uh, there's, there's kind of being able to also subvert them too. Like, I mean, the, for one, like there's certain tropes that I want to use that are easy, like the chasing through the woods thing, you know, that's gets used a lot. in um, in my writing, cause a lot of the stuff I do is, is in, is set in some sort of wooded atmosphere. Um, so I think that's, it's good in that case, but also like the final girl trope, you know, I like to like, you know, mess with that kind of throw it on his head because, you know, just the idea of just only being female, being vulnerable is I think kind of unfair. I think, you know, lots of of people are vulnerable if they're by themselves and somebody wants to murder them. So (laughs) very fair. Now, um, before we get into the genre stuff, I kind of wanted to get a little bit more about you just as a person, if that's all right. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. So why don't you just tell us your like your story, like your childhood to college, like what kind of brought you to this point of, of writing horror and and brought you to storytelling in general? And just a little bit about, you know, who you are as a person and a writer. Sure. Um, well, so my childhood was pretty, pretty bad. Um, yeah, uh, my uh, my mother passed away when I was young. Um, my mother's from uh, South Korea. Um, and my father was, uh, a sailor in the U S Navy. So, um, that was hard. And I kind of grew up with that like heaviness. So, um, there was a lot of abuse in my household, physical abuse and stuff like that with my grandmother who was, uh, there's a lot of racism that was involved within the family too. So I didn't, you know, writing was an escape for me. So writing was the place where, you know, started with poetry really young. Um, it was the one place I could put a lot of pain um, and I could work it out and, and actually survive, you know, mentally. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I I started reading like crazy and that was another form of escapism. I remember I, was, I have a pretty strong memory. I actually went to Catholic school for a little while and I uh, was writing in sixth grade um, and, uh, one of the nuns, our, one of our teachers, she, she was like the really mean one. Uh, yeah. Like she used to throw desks. <laughs> someone had a wow. <laughs> that was like the not like really fully Catholic person in school. So, um, 
but she it was so weird. She was the one person who saw what I was doing and it was, it was weird. She would give me time. She would find me like corners and I would just write short stories after short stories and poetry. So, you know, so there's some good things that come out of it, you know, despite the, the difficulty. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear a good nun story. <laughs> it's, always, <laughs> it's, it's, it's mixed. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> Especially in the context of horror, you know, at least there's something redemptive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so for me with horror though, um, uh, horror kind of chose me. Like I initially started the Seton Hill program with the intention to write fantasy. Cause that's mostly what I had done on my own. But as I wrote more and more, I think really in the end, having a, a painful background, it just kind of came out on the page and I you know, at a certain point I was like, well, okay, well, I guess this is what I do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's worked and it's been actually very therapeutic ever since. So had you read a lot of horror before that? Um, a minimal amount because I'm a big scaredy cat. So like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So from like from middle school until high school, did you kind of continue to build your aspirations? Like, like when was it first, you know, like put on your heart that, that you're going to be an author like what brought you to the Seton Hill program? Oh, wow. Well, so I always wanted to do two major things, um, write books and be an archaeologist. So, um, so I was obsessed from a pretty young age for both of those things. And, uh, you know, I, I joined the Navy coming out of high school, uh, to essentially get the, uh, the chance to have the benefits, be able to go to school and to get anywhere close to those things. So, um, I spent, well, I've heard, I joined, excuse me, I joined the air force first, but then later I had a break in service and I joined the Navy. So that really gave me that opportunity. So it wasn't a very direct path to writing, but, uh, it was always there. Yeah. But you knew what you wanted. So it, it kind of was like the best way to get to it, you know? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Yeah. Now, does like your time in the Navy, does that influence you at all as a writer or is it because you and I were friends, you've talked a little bit about your time there before, but is it something that helped you or was it something that was kind of like, uh, I wouldn't do it again? Wow. Uh, for writing purposes, I mean, you meet so many different people from different places with different stories. Um, mm -hmm. I think it helps in terms of being able to see the human experience in a larger sense. Um, but in terms of what I did day to day, I would not say that directly contributed to my writing, but it was important part of kind of creating a sense of family for me. You know, once you, once you're in the service, you kind of, you kind of create bonds that are bigger because all of us, you know, most, most of us enlisted folk, we don't come from much. So we all yeah. kind of like understand that and kind of create our own sort of family. Yeah. It's almost, it kind of, it, um, it kind of mirrors the found family in a lot of uh, fantasy novels. I've, I've, it, it seems like you're saying like where it's a bunch of people who shouldn't really go together end up having to work for the same. Absolutely. Same yes. And then, yeah, you have these really interesting group dynamics. Yeah, I would agree. Now, just one thing about the personal background before we, we move on, you know, you, you said that your, that your father was in the Navy um, and that, you know, you have, East the South Korean heritage, mm -hmm. right? I guess it's a two-part question. Did your dad being in the Navy, did that, was that just kind of like a tool for you to move past out of your, 
you know, small town or is it something that you like wanted to like, follow in his footsteps? And then with the Korean heritage, has that played into your work at all? Did you find anything? Um, yeah. Well, well, I guess I'll let you talk. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, well, so um, I never really grew up in one place, so I moved around a lot. So I really didn't have like a town specifically to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea of moving and going to different places was kind of a lifestyle for me. Actually, it's been kind of different for me to, as an adult now to settle down because every like two or three years, I'm like, oh, it's time to leave again. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so, uh, I wasn't really looking directly to follow in my father's footsteps, um, as much as I saw it as an avenue to escape home, to get the education I wanted, to get to see the world. Um, I'm very interested in um, many cultures, so I got a chance to live in Japan for a couple of years as well, things like that. So, um, so with with the Korean heritage, yeah, d- definitely plays a p- huge role. In in Ferris Flesh, oddly enough, there isn't really a whole lot of that. Um, I actually tapped in more into my Polish side on my father's um, side, but um, a lot of my work uh, includes Korean mythology. Uh, themes of being um, kind of semi-isolated culturally. Um, I often try to think about what, like, my mother must have felt like, you know, being in a place that, you know, she arrived, she couldn't speak English at at first, you know. Um, So she was kind of alone trying to figure it out. So, yeah, I I definitely use that a lot. Well, well, in that isolation, it kind of is... so I guess the writing was kind of on the wall for horror because that, that sort of aloneness is kind of trademark of, of that genre. You know, you, you don't want to have someone to have connections because then, you know, they don't have someone to help them out of the situation. That they're exactly. In, you know? Yes. But I also like that because it, it creates a situation where this person has to rely on themselves. And I think when people are in those positions, uh, you can really show their strength in fiction um, and have them discover their own strength as well. So their growth. Perfect. Well, that kind of is a good jumping off point, I think, into your actual like writing philosophy. Um, you talked a little bit about the themes that you you wanted to focus on. Um, do you want to speak more to that? You know, you talked about, you know, family and that sort of thing. And I think in your notes, you put like marginalized voices. Do you want to? Um, I was I mentioned to you like the idea of otherness as a, as a big deal. Um, so a lot of what I put into my horror has to do with otherness. I think uh, Doratia or Dory in the book and Ferris Flesh is a really good example of that. She uh, she's particularly um, considered hideous. She doesn't adhere to those beauty standards. She is not a noble. She's a commoner. Um, so she's pretty much she's got nothing really going for her, unfortunately. Um, you know, but you, you, you know, you kind of, she's, she's also isolated. She gets, she ends up getting to this, getting to serve in this castle, um, with, uh, the countess. So but she doesn't really fit in, in any sort of way. So she's trying to find her way, you know, so we end up finding out what choices she makes regarding that. Um, but that kind of idea in general, looking at when we do a dissection of, of society in general with otherness, um, horror is a perfect place to show that and show that internal struggle and, you know, to make it horrific. Yeah. Just so I, I used to teach, um, a literature and creative writing at a, at a Catholic college that is, was mostly white people. Right? Um, so whenever we talked about like otherness, students always had a really difficult time grappling with what that meant. So could you define what you believe 
makes someone the the other because I tell them my own thing. But, you know, yeah. As, yeah. yeah, well, in order for someone to be other, there has to be some sort of socially believed standard. It doesn't have to necessarily be true. Um, so in, you know, American society, it really is um, the white Americans who are kind of that socially perceived standard. Um, so otherness is anyone who falls out, falls outside of that. Um, it can, you know, and we can always talk about smaller situations, maybe in, you know, we're talking about maybe in an engineering, you know, somebody walks in, it's going to be the only, uh, white female in the group, in the room, you know, that's an automatic otherness. So there's a unique experience, but it's a very exclusionary experience. Sure. That makes sense. It seems like you mentioned also in, in these notes, um, this idea of talking about otherness less on the side of monstrosity. Is that something that you see a lot of in horror? Um, I see. I see that. Um, yeah, one of the things I noticed on the notes was the idea of monstrosity uh, and what makes kind of a good good monster. And I think that otherness plays an important role because you know whether you decide to create a physical monster um, or if you have a monster who is just doing monstrous things, somebody who is. I mean, it really ends up kind of being the same thing. Um, and what, what's the perception? What is the motivation behind that? And also how you can kind of flip that on the he- its head and say, think about, well, in this case, if everyone's a monster, the other would be somebody who is not, right? Somebody who is good. So um, I play a lot with that in Ferris Flesh. That's very interesting. There's not like a whole lot of good people you're going to find in that book. <laughs> it's much more complex. So, so can you talk a little bit about how this idea of, of monstrosity or uh, has changed over time? Uh, I would say that it was much more simplistic um, because I think that in, you know, much more recently, we've been really delving into what, how our society is set up and how it Um, does create otherness, how it does create that exclusion. So I think as we get more aware of that, our monsters become more complex. You know, they're not just the creature from the, you know, lagoon type of thing. So um, it's, it becomes less about just the physicality um, and much more about things, you know, uh, like serial killers. I think there's a reason why it's particularly interesting for people because I mean, if there's any, uh, anyone who's a monster, you know, on a very scary, real one, <laughs> there's, there's that in our, our daily lives, you know? Right. I, um, I was reading, uh, whoever fights monsters, which is, uh, the, the book by the FBI uh, agent who they based Mindhunter on, I guess, where they were trying to like build the, um, like psychological models. Y- yeah. The profiling. And it's just, it's really sad. Like we all want to demonize these serial killers and we should for good reason. But in, like in every single one of them, there is just terrible, terrible abuse in their past. And like, yeah. it's kind of how, how as a society, the family sort of reflects a smaller society. And when they're ostracized and they have no base to, to fall back on, that's when you get somebody who is just has the potential to end up, you know, becoming just a failed person. And that's not to say that everyone who's been abused is, is going to be a serial killer. And he, he addresses that in the book, but when there's like a certain nature of person in a certain situation, like sometimes the perfect, let's call it the imperfect storm happens and 
you end up with that. So it's, yeah, it's really it seems disappointing. Like what you're saying is what's missing from that is is not having even the found family, um, mm-hmm. like Christy was discussing before, and 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 that person just truly being isolated through that abuse. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I also think choice plays a big role. You know, and I, yeah, I play a lot sure. a lot with that um, because you know there's a place you can make a choice. I think you know, and as somebody who has been abused in my childhood. Um, you kind of wake up at a certain point and you, you know, you have to realize like, I can change this, you know, I have that power. So, you know, I can't maybe do it while I'm here and I'm experiencing this, but when I go into my life, I can make a choice to be a good person, you know, cause I, and I, I tell my kids this all the time, you choose who you are, you know, it's just, you keep doing it over and over again, um, and making that choice to do good things. Um, you're gonna go in that direction. It's I like just, that. A, it, no, go ahead, Kathleen. Sorry. I like that a lot because I, I would think that the opposite of of choosing to be a good person, and that is what makes you a good person. I would say the opposite of that um, would be not that you choose to be a bad person, but I think that you don't choose at all, and you just become affected by the 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 pain of of your abuser or by the influences in the world, like money and, and, and other things like that. And that's how you become a bad person. Yeah. It's just by not taking that agency. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, it's almost a form of giving up. Yeah. 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 Well, I've, I've, I've seen you interact with your own kids and I mean, I think you're a wonderful mother. So I'm so glad that you were able to move past that. So so when it comes to, this would be the last question about, about otherness, I think, um, is it even possible to change our society to make it equitable? Is it, it like we just need to start from square one again? Or like, in your opinion, I'm not asking you to like fix all of all of the world right now. But <laughs> oh, like, <no. laughs> right. Um, it, like, is it even possible to, to kind of like create a society that's equitable for everybody in your opinion? Like a utopia, I guess that'd be a good utopia question. Man, I think that I think that it's possible to strive for it. And that's the important part. Yeah. Um. I think that in a lot of ways, being too overly tied to the outcome is going to be disappointing. You know, like my daughter, for example, she gets really like excited about like an event we're going to do. Right. So, um, you know, a birthday party or whatever, it's got to be perfect. And she's got this idea in her head that it's going to be like these certain kind of balloons and it's just going to be great. And the cake's going to be delicious. But if you get there and it's not quite right, is it really worth throwing away? So I try to like expectation management with that. But it's it's I think for society, it's important that we we work toward it. I think it's possible to get pretty dang close. Um, I think it takes time. And I think we have to understand that um, as a society as well, that, you know, look, um, we got to keep working and not give up. Um, it's, it's a step-by-step thing. Um, I always, I teach uh, a lot, obviously I teach history and I teach a lot of U.S. history as well. Um, and I always look at reconstruction. Um, always like talking about reconstruction because it was the time that we basically stepped forward as an American society and we got rid of slavery. We talked about having equal rights. You know, we talked about making sure black Americans could vote. Right. So what happened? Those laws were all in the books, but we gave up. We stopped. Yeah. So that, you know, you know, it didn't it didn't happen again until we're talking about the civil rights movement, that those things started getting enforced again. Um, So it's just you can't get away from it. You can't stop it. You can't keep moving forward. And I think that's a good 
it speaks to how you've parented your daughter there with the managing of expectations. And like, you have to follow through with, with your, with your expectations too, because I mean, we were so close and then we, yeah. And then we kind of let, you know, the daughters of the Confederacy kind of do the whole monument thing and all that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that is what a lot of people miss, um, in, in the conversation about, uh, what your individual role is in, um, anti-racism, you know, is, is really at the forefront of the conversation now. And I think that if you're someone who's not really listening, you might misunderstand that it's not about accusing you. It's about convincing you that you also have a role to play. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I think this all this talk about, you know, equitable society, I think it kind of like you talked about feminism a little bit earlier in the podcast and how you kind of had to manage, sorry, not manage, but you spoke to like the beauty standards of your uh, main character. And I'll kind of shut my mouth and practice being a good feminist and let you two talk about that a little bit. And so can yeah, you kind so, of speak to feminism in your story? Sorry, go um, ahead, Kathleen. Yeah, so, so Christy, why don't you start by um, kind of defining what feminism is to you and, and then how you approach that in your life and your work? Sure. Uh, a feminist is, I mean, to me, it's pretty straightforward. It's um, just the belief that um, women can be, have an equal experience, um, e- equal opportunities as, as men in society. You know, in terms of, what was the second part of the question again? It was in terms of my work. Yeah, how you approach it in your work and then in your life. Um, so in my work, uh, I really play on the themes of what is problematic with, uh, a patriarchal society in particular. Um, and in Ferris Flesh, I, I really look closely at the idea of how beauty standards do, do create power, but how that power again is supporting the patriarchal system further. So, I, I wanted to take a look at how, where we have Doratia, who's kind of on the lowest end of that. And then Elizabeth, by all accounts, was particularly beautiful. You know, where, where did that power differential, where does it happen? Um, also, you know, where you are on the social scale. Um, and then comparing, again, to the men in society. Um, in my mo- in my own life, I mean, it's something I'm, I'm pretty much... Uh, pretty strong feminist. I think that, again, this is something we need to continually work toward. Uh, the history of feminism has been one rife with its own issues with racism. So, I mean, we see a lot of movement toward making sure that there's a lot more um, inclusion, um, which is really important um, because this is a conversation we're having across all of society, not just one segment of society. Right. So what do you say to women who claim not to be feminists? Oh, I just ask them simple questions. Do you think that women should vote? Do you think that women should be able to get a job and support the families? You know, um, more often than not, the answer is going to be yes. Um, and you know what? Like, surprise, you're feminist. <laughs> if, you know, if you think you should be able to walk around freely outside without asking permission from a man, you're probably a feminist. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting, too. I was reading uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Blank, and he focuses a lot on the story of the orchestras and how um, they actually set up screens um, to allow everyone to equitably practice just by the performance of the instrument, because it was the belief by the orchestra that for the oboe, women's lungs weren't as capable as men's. 
And um, women just, even if they played well, they were not getting selected. And so once they put up the screen, the number of women in orchestras across the world just dramatically increased. Wow. Because these women had trained, you know, just as hard. And, and they, um, there was the example of one woman who um, she had a chest exam to examine the capacity of her lungs. And the doctor said, are you an athlete? Because your lungs are like so powerful. But meanwhile, she was this tiny Japanese woman who otherwise never would have been chosen to play in the orchestra. So I think like, you know, once you get past asking those simple questions, it's important to point to these examples of saying we, we do need to, to, there are perceptions and sometimes misperceptions, even when it comes to some of those physical capacity things Yes, that, absolutely. you know, you just have to be open to, Hey, maybe we could, you know, work to make things more fair. Even if you personally can't think of any examples in your life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yet just because you haven't had the experience yourself or seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, um, you know, I don't there's plenty of animals in the world that I haven't seen personally. <laughs> He's still out there. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think uh, uh, one of the, the best examples of that is the uh, is the whole whole controversy over the Olympics and downhill skiing. Where until like just like I think it was like 15 or 20 years ago, it was like they didn't allow women because they thought it would be bad for like their uteruses to go down. <laughs> really down the hill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll just send you the article. It's just it's gross. Like It's gross how how just how terrible it is. But I always yeah. hear things like that with being in the military, with like women being in the field and going to combat and things like that. They're like, oh, no, but you menstruate. Like, OK, <laughs> that, like, how does that affect, you know, someone's capability of, right. you know, holding a rifle coming, coming from someone who's never menstruated before? Like, oh, so you know exactly what that's like and how that's. An yeah, exactly. Well, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> it's like it just makes I just can't use my hands when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Once a month. I think so. Like as a as a man, I think that we at men in general have spent a lot of time like telling women how to be feminine like what would you like to see more from from men or or maybe less from men in this well that's a really good question um because i really do think that the one major failure we have um in feminism and society is um encouraging men to do some self-examination um not just for themselves but you know what's male culture right so it's really oh, harmful. I mean, yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it creates like this kind of macho culture, right? So you can't cry. You can't uh, admit to being hurt, things like that. Um, you know, I, I have a son as well. And I, I just think how damaging that must be um, to not be able to express those things. So I think to, to allow for men to think about for themselves to allow that kind of weakness, um, to not partition work as male or female, you know, if that's cooking dinner and cleaning dishes, you know, it's about usually in these cases in a family unit, if you know, you're, you're talking about people working together. So to accomplish a goal. So being okay with those things, learning to teach your children the same thing and the same expectations. Yeah. After I lost my job, um, I was kind of, it, it was, it was difficult for me because it was like, well, you know, if, if you're not providing then like, you know, what are you doing? Like, why are you this way? Yeah, it's <laughs> you must be a failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's still definitely something that stigmatizes. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic for our um, generation as as we age and continue to set norms for our children. And then as they age that I think we're, we'll start to see some of the no mom was always supposed to cook dinner idea start to disappear. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I was telling my husband this, um, that I'm a Gen Xer, just barely at the, at the like younger end of it. But, um, just in my lifetime, I've seen so much change, you know, um, and subsequent generations, um, you know, my students, for example, there's things that like, that would be like absolutely normal for when I was in high school. Um, and my, my students, they would never let that sort of thing fly. So it's, it's wonderful to see yeah. already. I, and I think one area that I would, I would love to see more so is um, support for that in the workplace for both men and women. So for men to be able to say, I'm taking paternity leave oh. for men to be <laughs> able to say, I'm leaving work on time because I need to go home and cook dinner for my kids. It's, it's necessary. It is absolutely. And actually, um, so the military is really bad for that in particular. So I was dual military, meaning I was in, uh, when I was in the Navy, I was, my husband was also in the Navy at the same time. So, um, you know, we, we had, we lost our first son when he was an infant and he, you know, we're going to all these doctor's appointments and having ultrasound after ultrasound and his chain of command are like, why are you going? You don't need to be there, you know? And he's like, this is my son, you know, it's just as much my son. And I want, I'm, I'm concerned just as much. Um, so, you know, when he, wanted a chance to leave, you know, to leave early, to be able to help me out both emotionally and to find out what was going on. You know, they gave him all sorts of hard oh, that time. makes me just, so angry. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, yeah, I see it. And I think paternity leave in particular is really important that we have that, you know, as a, a part of um, equalizing um, our society between men and women. So we just read Altered Carbon on the podcast and we kind of talked about the issues that that noir kind of has. And I guess what male authors in general kind of have a problem with um, respecting women in their work. And uh, I had talked to Sarah Tantlinger, actually, because, you know, she, like she also reads horror. And I was like, well, you well, you had a book about H.H. H. Holmes. So you've done some pretty <laughs> terrible things yes. to, to people in your stories. So but in Altered Carbon, there's there's one scene in particular where it's like, it's it's just it's it's like a torture scene and it's just there for the sake of like violating anyway um how can male authors work to respect women more like in their work how can we work against like the sort of male gazy gross sort of extreme focus on breasts sort of thing, you know? <laughs> i've read some recent things <laughs> some descriptions <laughs> are very funny um yeah um you know i think it's kind of uh it's it's weirdly simple and complex um you know first just Think about, you know, women just being human beings, you know, (laughs) they go through their lives. They have wants and needs and desires, you know, all the things that a a, a guy's going to feel, you know, if the male is a male author, you know, looking back at yourself, if you feel that way, you know, you're you're a human being and so are women. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's awesome. It reminds me of that George Martin quote who he has his own problems with, with that in his work, but he's like, well, you know, first and foremost, I view women as people. It's like <laughs> revolutionary. Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I like to, I think it's important to, cause you know, a lot of times with fiction, we're talking about guys and bad guys. Right. And it's so much more complex. And I think it's important to put that complexity for men and women. Um, but at the same time, like 
if you have a character who is who's a woman and they're a bad person, that it you know there are women who are bad people. It, it's it happens. There, but you can't forget. Yeah, there's women who are good people. Same right. thing with men. Um, we're talking the same thing with race. You know, so um, that's I, I always felt like equality in any kind of sense is just about understanding that people who might be different from you in mm. your perception different. Right. So they're, they're experiencing human things. Um, they're human beings as much as your, their humanity is just as important as yours. Sure. And, and kind of back to your work. And I think this will be our last, our last feminism thing. And then we'll kind of move into like your genre stuff in the last little bit of the podcast. But so you're talking about um, how you kind of work against the trope of the last female standing like in horror and I've always kind of found that that trope as I've as I've kind of grown and, and read more. It's like, well, it's kind of goes back to the virginity thing. Like the last pure woman is the one who kind of like defeats the evil and everything. Can you kind of speak to uh, feminism and horror in general and how you've kind of worked to redefine that in your work? Sure. Um, I think that uh, I try very hard to give women um, choice. Um, to give women um, empowerment as well in my as my characters um, and the freedom to be either to be good or evil or a mix of both um, I, I find that with the kind of final girl thing we're only seeing um, a young woman um, and as you mentioned that kind of virginal kind of uh, like suggestion there um, you know, oftentimes a trope, she has to be attractive as well. So, you know, that's, I know, not, you know, that's not going to be necessarily the case. Um, this is, you, you can have somebody who has many different, um, elements of their personality. I think that in, in the end, I mean, we're talking about rounding out somebody to actually be someone who's fully fleshed as a human. Yeah. I, th- I think it's a good example of, of nuance too. Because at first blush, you're like, oh, like a woman, like beat the monster. Great. But it's like, well, also there's a bunch of other problematic stuff. we also Right. You know? yeah, I remember yeah. when like, you know, when they first started really including women in like um, video games with playable characters and things like that, like, <laughs> and it was always armored by distraction. Right. So you're just right. like, yeah, there's a woman, but she has no clothes on. Like, why doesn't <laughs> yeah. she, why does she get clothes? It's <laughs> yeah, a Tomb Raider. The, yeah. yeah. The female armor trope. Yeah. <laughs> What is this protecting? I don't know. <laughs> and I think that's exactly it. That was, you know, it's always for a male audience, you know, and, and um, I remember when the, the recent Ghostbusters movie came out um, with all female cast, you know, there was so much complaining, you know, and I went to the, I actually went to the theater by myself and like, I cried like a baby <laughs> watching it because it was the first time I saw a situation where I had this female cast and they were for me, they were, they were, the, the movie was for women to watch, you know? So, um, they, with us in mind, it was really cool. It kind of reminds me of the, um, uh, Captain Marvel film, which I personally, I, I liked it. Like, like I went in with no expectations and I said, well, this is actually a pretty nice film. And it, it, it kind of speaks to those, those sort of tropes of like, especially in the climax, he tries to like, I'll get her to fight him without her power and like with her power, he just blows him across the whole desert, you know? Um, but like a lot of people were like, Oh, this is just like feminist propaganda. And it's like, well, it, it, and like, I mean, 
and it's not it's it's just i mean like we've seen superman like punch someone through like all of new york city like six skyscrapers in a row you know and what's why can't women do that i don't know so are you saying that's unrealistic expectations for men jacob like are you saying you can't do that like what (laughs) what (laughs) yeah it reminds me of um just to go back to the, like the the distraction, um, I'll date myself, but when I was in high school, the movie Sucker Punch came out, which mm. is it's a super interesting concept and really like fascinating visual movie. But you know, it's all about like you know in in the alternate reality, the girls get into their you know fishnets and and crop tops. And one of my friends was like, "Oh, that's just for girls. It's a girls movie. It's all about girls." And I was like, "You think that's for girls to watch?" Right. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, I remember being like, I kind of want, like, I want, I want to watch this movie, but I just sort of feel like I'm sort of watching something like I'm looking through someone's window, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. exactly for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it also is a little bit problematic, I think, in the romanticization of mental health issues and just like, oh, the depressed girl is, you know, the, it, it kind of fits into uh, maybe some problematic horror stereotypes too of, like oh the suffering one there's something attractive about there's something mysterious she's got a dark secret yes oh yes just unhealthy i wanted to mention too like um jacob full disclosure like i am obsessed with captain marvel so you know (laughs) i absolutely yeah love that and it does that whole like story reminds me of something that happened with my daughter which i think is like the perfect example of the men who are complaining um so I remember um, when my daughter was younger, um, she's particularly athletic uh, and always has been. Um, she went out into our yard and started playing um, soccer. She had never played soccer before, but she just kicking around this ball with one of the neighborhood boys who was like extremely like taught to be pretty like anti-feminism, misogynistic, you know. Um, and he would say things to her all the time. And she was just so confused. She's like, I've never heard of this sort of thing. You know, and her and I had a lot of discussions about it. So they're, they're, they're chasing this ball and she's like kicking it like crazy and he's missing and missing and missing and she kicks it really hard and he falls down and you know and she just stopped and she was like hey um are you okay can I help you up you know and <laughs> that to me like it was the difference like how you know oftentimes in the in a more if, if it was a boy doing it, he would be like, yeah, you know, I'm so awesome. And look at you, you fell, you know, but there she is being very, still very humble and, and kind and considerate. And I think that we could, something we could be talking about for men to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that we try to do with our son is, um, is like, just like, it's okay to feel your emotions. Like, <laughs> it's like, I, I remember like so viscerally, like when Emma was pregnant, um, I was, I was coaching the track team and there was an assistant coach there and, uh, and he had about a two and a half year old or a three year old. And the kid was like, just not having a good day. He was like clutching to him and he wouldn't let like the dad put him down. And eventually the, like he gets super frustrated and he was like, Hey, why are you being such a little bitch? And I was like, this is a two year old dude. Oh like, God. what are you doing? And this other guy on the team, um, he like walked over and he was like, what are you saying to your son? Like he got super upset. Like, and I was like, good for you, man. Like, yeah. cause I was, I was so taken aback that I was like, wh- I was just shocked. And, and this, you know, 19 year old came over and was like, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you talking to your yes. son like that? And I was <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, Easton, great job. Yeah. Like, I, I, <laughs> I think something that we forget is that, um, the desire for attention is a valid need, 
Um, and it's and it speaks to something that is that is missing, like, you know, in, in that person and especially in children, because, you know, when a kid cries because they're upset, that may be the worst their life has ever been. You know, they just don't understand what's going on, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially that young. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is like a good time to kind of go into the the last part here about um like horror itself and what it means to you. And we focus a lot of here on um the tropes and conventions that make a genre <clears throat> and a subgenre what it is. So you've described your work as gothic horror. So what does that mean to you? So with gothic horror, we're talking about, classically speaking, um, somebody who is from the outside being brought into um, a, a new place, usually something that's a very elaborate location. You know, a old Victorian house is pretty classic. We see that a whole lot. Um, in this case, for mine, it's, it's going to be the castle. Um you know, then they, they experience these kind of things that are happening to them, um, within. So there's a, there's usually kind of a, uh, historic element to it, uh, with a, a building that's attached to it. Um, there's oftentimes overtures of like something romantic going on as well. Um, and some really weird twisted things usually happening within the confines of that building. And I think, um, I'd say, and I'm not sure if I'm correct on this, but like Edgar Allan Poe was one of the first first people to kind of do that, right? Or is that, or am I wrong on that? You know what? I'm I'm not. I'm gonna let you speak to that because I don't deal with literature quite as much. So, um, yeah. I, it sounds right to me, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I had a professor in college um uh, talk about I forget what it, but it was the same thing. It was a house on a hill and everything, and a house of usher. Um, yeah, the fall of the house of Usher, and I think that, and he may have been wrong. I don't know. Like, like he was an Americanist, so or he might have been right. I don't know. So yeah, but yeah, it was it's interesting. So for us, we, I'm not sure if you've read Sean Coyne's uh, book, The Story Grid. Mm-mm, no. So he delineates between aesthetic genres like fantasy, science fiction, and horror, and structural genres like thriller and mystery and romance. Mm-hmm. You know where. It, like in fantasy, you don't really have a, a set plot structure outside of the hero's journey, whereas in thriller, like there are certain beats, especially in romance, there are certain beats that you have to have to meet. So I guess I kind of want to dive into it. In your opinion, what defines a book as horror and not like dark fantasy or thriller? Because there's kind of those elements in in horror. There's, you know, like the thriller element where you want to feel that that kind of fast pace. Yeah. And then in dark fantasy, like it is kind of horrific or like in grimdark, like there are some scenes in like Joe Abercrombie's work where you're like, that's, that's awful. It's pretty horrific there too. So I'm interested to see your, like what kind of sets horror apart from those two other. Yeah, there's a lot, there's so much overlap between the three of them. It is definitely hard. Um, I sometimes I think that, you know, I think it's unfair to completely categorize, but um, there, I think if we want to try to conceptualize it, um, I've always kind of thought is uh, dark fantasy and even thrillers too is something that are what we would say out that happen the horrors that happen outside the house right so that happen out there um, and if you go out there you can have that happen to you right so but horror is when they get into your house or maybe into your very body you know maybe it's you um, so I think horror gives us a lens to really deeply you know dissect those things. Uh, 
I think that uh, there's really not quite the same kind of formula. Like we see, obviously, mystery has, and then you mentioned romance, has some much more strict formulas, um, particularly indie horror, which is really a thriving scene right now. Um, there's some amazing things going on. There's really, people are doing it the way that they feel is right to them. So um, breaking tropes, you know, breaking any kind of formulaic thing. Um, yeah, really studying the human condition and using horror as a lens for that. So how did you approach um, writing your novel that just came out? Like, can you talk a little bit more about the specific things that you wanted to do with your story? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about before. I wanted to look at society, um, how society influences people, how people make their choices against that, how abuse influences people, um, how they can be sympathetic. And, you know, you were talking about, Jacob, earlier, the, the uh, serial killer aspect and the bad experiences, uh, oftentimes, that might be abusive, their childhoods and things like that. So um, I wanted to overlay that with how choice plays into that, how it, society influences that, how patriarchal structure influences that, um, and how powerlessness also plays a role, you know, because I, I feel that in a lot of cases, people who are utterly powerless are looking for something that gives them something, some kind of power, right? So what choices do they make to, to get that? Sure, sure. I am... Um... It's interesting. I've, I've, I've noticed there are two types of, of people who, who kind of have opinions on the horror genre. The first is like, why would you read that, especially in 2021 and 2020 when there's so much horrific stuff has already gone on? And then there's people who who use it um, as like, well, in the end of a horror like novel, generally there's a triumph of, of good, would you say, most likely? Or? I think in the more classical horror there is, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's been some discussion about horror being possibly the most conservative of all the genres, because if you think about it, a lot of um, typical horror, you know, the horror happens, you know, and then they take care of the situation. Everything goes back to the way it was before somehow, you know. Um, yeah. But I think that, again, that's been becoming more and more twisted. Um, you know, I... I personally oftentimes don't really, I'm not going to necessarily give a, uh, an ending that you're going to expect everything going to be okay at the end, you know? Yeah. Um, and especially <laughs> in our recent history in the U S yeah. Um, I think that's much that I think people are looking for a study of something realistic. Um, yeah. it, it helps you understand what the heck is going on around you when nothing seems to make any sense. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, with some of these, like, you know, changes and twists that are happening, um, new or recently thriving subgenres in horror? Because I think we see that a lot. I mean, at least like I am, you know, able to notice it in a lot of the SFF that I read, um, like the newer things that are becoming recently popular um, or kind of coming back, you know, into the trend cycle. What would you say is um, some kind of subgenre categories? And then what are the characteristics of those that are, you know, really popular in the indie scene? Yeah. Um, so I read a, a lot, mostly with indie. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, to really define having like a subgenre really coming out uh, because it's so varied. Um I will say there's a lot more focus on uh, trans experiences, um, a lot more inclusion and purposeful attempts at inclusion. Um, 
Uh, weirdly enough, I will say there's a cannibalism trend. I've seen a lot of cannibalism <laughs> kind of research. Got a lot of tasty. <laughs> yeah, I really recommend Tender as a Flesh, by the way, if you <laughs> if you want a cannibalism story. Um, <laughs> but oftentimes it's but it's used uh, not just for the sake of watching the horror of it. You know, Tender and the Flesh uh, is the Flesh in particular is a great example of something that studies like well, once you decide humans are also food who gets to be a human and who gets to be food so oh, yeah. yeah and there's some heavy themes in there that you can look back in history and go oh wow wow yeah so yeah it, it well indies in particular there's a lot of that um going on um and i think people are really looking they think it's part of what speaks to the indie scene well that like you said it kind of asks the question like what's the human person and like it, it like if we start to like define that as, as something else as, as like, well, anyone who's human, then you run into all sorts of, of moral dilemmas. And that's kind of what happened with, with, you know, Nazism, which, which somehow is back again. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so exactly. Like, how do you, <laughs> how do you conceptualize that when, the, when you know, the world just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. Well, do you have any ad- advice like for young writers hoping to get into the genre? Cause like, as you're talking about it, like even for me as someone who's only written a couple of horror short stories, it's like, Seems very intimidating to have to have all these themes at play, you know. So for younger writers, um, like what would be your your best advice to them trying to get into to writing horror? Um, I was just reading some advice from Stephen Graham Jones just the other day on Twitter, um, and I, I had to kind of laugh, but he's absolutely right. You know, write that story, and I'm going to totally repeat, well, basically paraphrase what he was saying. Um, write that story that you think is impossible that people say, there's no way you can actually do that. It's too much. There's too many elements. Just write the dang thing um, and and let it go. Um, and, you know, start that first impossible element of that, that boulder and uh, let it, as he said, slide all the way down to that finished <laughs> book. Um, and don't let anyone tell you that you can't. You know, you're going you're gonna to come across people who are going to give you that, that, you know, you shouldn't do this. You're not good enough. You're, you know, you don't know where to put your commas. That's me. Um, so, you know, in fact, you know, I, I know you and I have talked about Jacob, like a certain experience I had, you know, you got to make a decision. If someone's going to do that, like, no, the heck with them. Cause guess right. what? If I had listened to that person and I wouldn't be in this place, I wouldn't have a book out and I wouldn't have gotten on the preliminary ballot for the Stoker awards even. So, I mean, yeah. You gotta, you gotta decide for yourself. It's kind of like, it sounds like you're saying like decide and then own it. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let your imagine, you know, don't forget that writing is something that, um, it is often, it's an inspiration, you know, don't make it a drudgery. You know, we make, we do that with everything else. Let it still be art. Let it still, you know, let it speak to you. Yeah. I think that uh, there's a distraction that's a little dangerous, which is while our accomplishments and, you know, being on the preliminary sticker ballot is is fantastic. Like, would you still write this book if, if that didn't happen? And I think if we only focus on the accomplishments like, oh, I have X publications, et cetera, like that's less important than having written the story that you wanted to write. That is very and, true. And even if it didn't come out the way that you wanted it to come out, like, well, you learned something about that writing experience, like, and you got to explore that idea and, and do it justice. And, and now you're so much more prepared to do the next one. And accomplishments come if you just 
keep doing that. Yeah, and in the end, the truth is, no matter what you write, is not going to come out exactly the way you wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> always better in your brain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I know for me, just trying to exist in academia and get a full time teaching gig, it's like it's so easy just to be like, "Well, I need more publications." Ah. <laughs> And yeah. it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, it, like it loses the, like the only way to get those quality publications is to kind of have fun with it and not aim for it. It's kind of like a little Zen thing that you have to do. It like, is. I, I, I had a, like a, I'm a mentor, like an undergrad. He's like, you know, I really view writing as a pleasurable experience. And there's me like stressing about like getting this thing. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Uh. <laughs> I still, I, I feel that too. You know, I get that stress. Um, but I really try. I made I made a promise to myself after you know as we were graduating from Seton Hill, um, that if I ever felt like writing was becoming too much of a job and I was losing the joy, that I was going to stop for a while and just like yeah. I don't know enjoy some martinis for a while or something until <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I remembered the why I did it in the first place. Yeah. So uh, Christy, what are you working on next? Oh wow. So um, I right now have a uh novella um that it specifically deals with kind of modern horror uh with the meets like korean mythology um and kind of the mixed asian experience specifically mixed korean experiences um i've been shopping that um so i've i'm also working on a story for cemetery gates media they have a seasonal witch anthology coming out so that's what i've been really working on pretty hardcore right now um so that was really exciting to get to be part of that it's uh surrounds kind of you know harvest season themes um corn dollies a little bit of uh korean mythology i injected in there with the korean egg ghost just kind of this faceless ghost that you know is looking for an identity and tends to kill people if they see it <laughs> Well, um, you know, as ghosts yeah. do. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> as, as one ghost would do. Um, yeah. Um, oh, gosh. I've got a couple other projects. I've got a novel I'm, I'm also working on, which is actually was my, my thesis at Seton Hill. And I keep working on that over and over again. I will finish the dang thing the way I want it to be done at some point. Um, and I have also another novella that is I, I have been calling my... Um, kind of a fusion between the the yellow wallpaper and spirited away (laughs) and just with the seton hill novels like mine is just it's in it's actually in my basement like and it's just this giant thick binder with all these notes on it and i'm just i just i keep looking at it and i was like you know this is a telltale heart situation i hear it and i just (laughs) ignoring it you know Yeah. yeah I would have um, never worked on it again, except for like Sarah, you mentioned Sarah Tatlinger. She was like, you need to finish this. And I'm like, dang you. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> She's so great. I, I love her so much. <laughs> I, I just want to ask just before we wrap up, you talked about the, the, the harvest, um, uh, witchcraft, uh, a novella or short story that you're working on. Um, have I, have I just imposed this on you in my brain, but, or have you talked before about, about being kind of involved with, like not involved deeply, but with like the Wiccan community, is that something you? Like, yeah, I would talk say about, probably, yeah, pagan. Um, yeah. I have some. I have pagan beliefs. Um, I found a lot, a lot of inspiration. Yeah, from pagan beliefs. I've gone to. I was. Uh, I've done some education with uh, a a coven in uh, Maryland for a while too. Mm. 
<laughs> it's kind of ironic given the name of Maryland. But, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we'd love to talk to you more about that maybe in a, like in a separate episode. That's awesome. Um, well, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of speak to? I know we're kind of in the wrap up phase here, but is there anything else that you f- feel that you wanted to talk about and didn't get to or? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Awesome. Well, uh, well where can we find you on Twitter or on social media in general? Sure. You- um, so I use Garnet on winter, um, pretty frequently. So I have, uh, my website is garnet on winter.com and okay. on Twitter, I'm at garnet on winter as well. Perfect. Perfect. And um, where can we buy your book? Because I know it's on Amazon, but like I always ask, is there a different medium that like is better for you as an author where you perhaps see more like other royalties or anything like that? Like, like where can we best support you? You know, um, I think it's less about supporting me in this case. I mean, Amazon um, does as well. Um, but uh, I really recommend Bookshop because uh, that is those indie bookstores. Uh, they're the ones that are uh, feeding that website. So you're supporting indie bookshops as well if you're purchasing books there. Perfect. Well, we always love doing that. All right, Christy. Well, thank you so much. It was great. Yeah. We really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to The Archetypus. If you'd like to support us, you can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash archetypist. Our next episode will continue our journey into the science fiction genre. Upcoming novels include The Martian by Andy Weir and A Memory Called Empire by Arkady Martin. To follow along with the rest of our book list, search Archetypist on Goodreads under the People tab. For episode updates, content polls, and to follow along with Jacob and Kathleen's writing journeys, you can find us on Twitter at at archetypist underscore pod and on Instagram under the same name. For questions, advertising inquiries, or to schedule your own author interview, please email us at archetypistpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, stay positive, stay safe, and stay connected. Archetypists, out. <laughs>